We are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight, a special event, a baseball life. Please join me as we welcome to the clubhouse the author John Lord and Bill Giles. That, but I, I really appreciate that both of you came up from uh, Philly's land for this, especially with Munich behind the wheel. So uh, I, I really appreciate that. And I think to start, I have a question, two different questions, but uh, one for each of you. And just to get us going, John, uh, John Lord, the author of the book, if you could just tell us how this project came about. And for those of you who don't know, John is a professor and the director of sports marketing, I believe, at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia. Well, it goes actually back to 2001 when I started teaching a baseball class and I asked Bill Giles to come and speak and he was uh, more than gracious and happy to do so. And uh, I got to know Bill pretty well over the ensuing years. He actually uh, got me to the Bartman game where I actually <laughs> watched that from the Major League box next to the Marlins dugout. He had already retreated to the uh, suite at that point in time. Uh, so that was, uh, I never recovered, frankly. <laughs> but anyway, um, in, uh, after that game, I actually uh, I sent him a thank you note via email and said, by the way, I, you know, I've written a book, a couple of books on, on business, and uh, I'd love to help him with his memoirs if he was going to do something like that. And he said he was actually working on that for his grandchildren, maybe to get it published. And he sent me some materials, and I read that, and, and eventually... Um, he wrote a book called Pouring Six Beers at a Time, which was his memoir. a great book. And then later on, uh, I, you know, academics have to do research, and we were going through a reaccreditation as a business school, and so I had to do research. Even though I've been there 40 years, I still got to do it. So uh, I figured, you know what, if I'm going to do research, I might as well do something that's fun. And so uh, I had an, a concept of a book about the business of baseball, which eventually became this book, and having had an opportunity to speak with Bill on numerous occasions about baseball, I knew how involved he was in so much that went on in crafting the business side and the economic side of the game when he was uh, power owner and uh, CEO and general partner of the Phillies. And so eventually uh, I kind of drilled down to the idea of writing a book about the things that he was most involved in, mostly with Major League Baseball and then with the Phillies, uh, both in terms of what he did with the franchise and some of the TV deals, and then a chapter on building the new ballpark at Citizens Bank Park. Uh, the book covers 1981 to 2002, because in 1981 he bought the club, and in 2002 uh, Major League Baseball reached its first labor agreement without a work stoppage since 1972, and uh, that, and as we've talked about this, uh, what happened in that labor agreement kind of set the stage not kind of, did set the stage for the growth of baseball subsequently. And uh, so I interviewed Bill on numerous occasions, got a lot of background information. I downloaded a ton of articles, uh, and he put me in touch with several of our owners and major league executives like Bob DuPay, who I had an opportunity to interview and added something to the book, and eventually it got published. So I met my research requirements. I had an opportunity <laughs> to spend time with Bill, and I'm happy. Well, you, you did a wonderful job, and... Uh for those in the clubhouse and those listening to the podcast, 
Uh, it's published by the Temple University Press, and the actual name of the book is Bill Giles and Baseball. Uh, and it's really terrific. I, I know our fans will really get into it. Uh, it's right up their alley. And uh, to start with Bill, my question is, we have a little sign in here that talks about your first baseball game, and it kind of comes, this little insert comes with all of the baseballs that we make. And you truly have a, a, a baseball life, a, your, your entire life, uh, as Warren Giles' son, as I'm sure everyone knows. Uh, if you either have a memory of your first baseball game or your earliest, just an early memory that you have of, of baseball. I do. The uh, Cincinnati Reds were playing the Detroit Tigers where's it? <laughs> in 1940, yeah. and the Reds beat the Tigers <laughs> <laughs> in, seven, in seven games. And I was uh, six years old, and I was sitting with my mother and father, and everybody stood up after the game. I tugged on my mother's dress. And I said, we did win, didn't we? <laughs> I said, why is Daddy crying? <laughs> that was the first game. 1940. Well, I didn't know you were going to make me cry to start the, uh, start the discussion, but that is baseball, and uh, well, thank you for sharing that. Why don't you ask him when he stole Ernie Lombardi's glove? <laughs> <laughs> All right, go. You're not going to get arrested, are you? No, uh, but... The police were after me. <laughs> in 1939, the Reds were in a race, uh, and they won the pennant eventually. But Ernie Lombardi was the star player for the Cincinnati Reds, a big old catcher, one of my favorite players of all time. And he had a went up to my father's office, which is in the ballpark, and he had, his nickname was Lom. And he went in to meet with my father about something, and he put his catcher's mitt on the doorknob to my dad's office. And I saw it. I was five years old at the time. And I took it. <laughs> and Lombardi refused to play without his mitt. My, my father called the FBI, Pinkerton Police. <laughs> and Lombardi did not play for three days <laughs> without his mitt. <laughs> My dad comes home, and I'm out in the front yard playing with his glove. <laughs> the first time I ever got socked by my father. <laughs> Hopefully that was the last glove you, uh, you took. Yeah, I think it was. <laughs> well, early memories, that's pretty good. Uh, there, uh, John's book really... It does a wonderful job, and, and just to give you a sense of some of the chapters, they talk about some of the subjects, television revenue, collusion, the rise and fall of Faye Vincent, the strike of 94, realignment, wild cards, interleague play, Citizens Bank Park. Uh, so there's a lot to cover, and uh, so I guess really maybe a good starting point, and then John, you can jump in wherever you kind of from your angle, which is a little bit different. But are there any, to, to, to Bill, there's been a lot of changes over time uh, in your baseball changes. life. Yep. If, is, there, is there any change that immediately jumps to mind as something you're uh, so glad that it happened and maybe a change that you wish 
did not happen. Well, I was very, very involved in the realignment and going to three divisions. I was chairman of all the committees to do that, realign the divisions, leagues have uh, wild cards. I was really pushing for wild cards. And uh, Bud Sidley and I became very close during this period of time when all, all these changes were made. And uh, I've always believed that hope and faith, mainly hope, of a baseball fan in a particular town is critical to the success of that franchise and the baseball. And Bud Selig and myself, to some extent, have done a wonderful job. We're now these small market teams. Kansas City was in there this year. Every team now in baseball, their fans can kind of have hope that their team might get to the World Series. And that is critical. And all these rules with the wild cards and the three divisions and the revenue sharing is big. Revenue sharing is big. And without Bud Selig and a couple of other owners, we would never have revenue sharing. A team like Pittsburgh and Kansas City under the old rules would never have been where they have been the last couple of years. So a lot of wonderful things. When I first bought the team in 1981. Total revenue for baseball was about $1.2 billion. Now it's almost $9 billion. And all the things that have happened on a revenue basis has been terrific. Uh, teams used to... The industry as a whole, from uh, back from 1990 or even earlier... Through 2002, the industry, when you put all the teams' profit and loss together, was losing three or four hundred million dollars a year. Three or four hundred million dollars a year. Why was that? Well, Peter Ubrock understood it when he became commissioner, and he came in at that time. There was 26 owners, and he said, "I figured out the problem for baseball. If I give each of you owners a black button." And say if you push that black button, you're going to finish fourth, but you're going to make $10 million. Or give you a red button, and you're going to lose $10 million, but you'll be in the playoffs. You'll all push the red button. The ownership people usually only cared about winning and getting the playoffs. They did not care about making money. Bud Selig has turned that around with all the revenue sharing and the new labor agreement in 2002. Now the industry is making three or four hundred million dollars a year. It's been a marvelous turnaround, and uh, a lot of people deserve the credit. But I think Selig's done a good job. John, any uh, anything you want to touch well, on? Well, it was interesting uh, researching the uh, the chapter on on expansion and realignment because uh, there there have been a lot of uh, Backstories to the realignment. Uh, of course, there was a situation that, that one of the things that got Faye Vincent into trouble was that he tried to move the Cubs uh, and St. Louis from the east to the west when there were two divisions. And uh, the Cubs, the Tribune Company, took a very dim view of that because they didn't want to uh, start games a lot much later on a west coast type of schedule and lose the lead in to their very profitable evening news. Uh, eventually, they created three divisions, and the Cubs wound up in the central, and that was a little bit more palatable to them. Uh, there was also a situation like that with Texas, and George Bush, who at the time was the managing partner of the Texas Rangers, had to be had to get special consideration in how the American League realigned 
so that he didn't play a lot of games on the West Coast for the same reason, television. There was a, a, a plan that I think that you were in favor of initially, that Bud City was in favor of, which was radical realignment, which would have caused a number of teams to switch leagues and go to a basically geographic alignment to cut down on travel time and get more TV games in the, in the, in the uh, time frame of the uh, teams. And, of course, that eventually was not successful. But uh, there was one quote that I used in the book. Seelig said that they had looked at more maps than Magellan uh, <laughs> in terms of the number of possible realignments. And uh, one of the things that I, that I had asked Bill about was, do you have any of those old maps? Because he had, apparently you had, like, what, several dozen of them, right? Yes. Unfortunately, they were victims of the move from the vet to the new ballpark. But there was there's a but the whole book is really kind of the backstories of a lot of the things that, that, that most fans who follow the game on the field aren't really focused on, which is the business side. No, you do a wonderful job with that, and I think people will real will really enjoy that. Uh, Thank you. Uh, yeah, the, well, there's a lot there. There's a there's a lot there. Uh, could I could I uh, talk about one thing and ask Bill because we promised. Uh, our our, our uh, friend here is this about Detroit? To talk about uh, Detroit a little bit. <laughs> uh, Bill didn't want to share a lot of the stories in the car, so uh, we promised this one. But uh, uh, one of his one of one of Detroit's players, a player that played really before he was uh, a big fan, was Lance Parrish. He was a very very good catcher on the team that won the, the World Championship in '84. Uh, by the way, I do have some mistakes in the book, and I have a list of errata. One of them was like, I, had, I had five on the brain, and I wrote that the Tigers won in 85. Well, they won in 84, so I apologize for that mistake. Uh, they, I think they started with year 35 and 5. I had fives on the brain. Mm. What can I tell you? But anyway, um, there's a chapter on collusion. And Bill was a major play, a player in collusion. And, we, and people that know baseball know about the collusion era. It was an ugly era. Uh, uh, Marvin Miller said that collusion was a worse scandal than the Black Sox scandal. Uh, but uh, he was a major player, and uh, the player that was involved was uh, Lance Parrish. So I think that would be an interesting story for Bill to tell what happened and have our friend Manisha know all about it. Well, there have been two awful things. You know, I, I'm a baseball lifer. My, my, my mother died when I was seven. I was an only child. I was born and raised in a ballpark. So... Two things that have happened in the last 70 years I've been working in baseball uh, was the 1994 season where we didn't play the World Series in the playoffs. The other was signing Lance Parrish. That was back in, what, 87, 88? 87. And... Uh, we were told by the commissioner Uberoff that you should not sign anybody else's player free agent because that's what's driving up the prices of salaries and so forth. And I did not think it was right to do that. I thought it was illegal to do that. And, and we were a pretty good team. We were in second place or so the year before and Mike Schmidt was our key player and he comes to me and says, Bill, if you get Lance Parrish, we can win the pennant. So I talked to a few owners, and some said don't sign him. Some said do your own thing. I talked to some lawyers, said do your own thing, etc. So I decided to go sign Lance Parrish. 
and he was making a million dollars with the Detroit Tigers, and I offered him a million one hundred thousand with a two hundred thousand dollar bonus. And uh, he didn't really want to leave Detroit, and Tom Rich was his agent, and I met with Tom in Tampa, Florida. And Tom Ritz says, you know what baseball is doing is illegal. If you sign Lance Parrish, maybe it'll take some pressure off that. So I signed Lance Parrish. Unfortunately, unfortunately Lance Parrish was awful. <laughs> he, could not, he could not only not hit, he couldn't catch. <laughs> his wife walked into the ballpark and the fans booed the hell out of his wife. <laughs> it was a disaster. So those are two things I didn't like. <laughs> there is a, uh, I had this great picture. Uh, it's a 270 degree view of Wrigley Field the night of the first night game, 8-8-88, which wasn't played because it got rained out in the third <laughs> inning. But in the second inning, when the picture was taken, the batter was Lance Parrish. And his statistics were up on the message board. He was hitting 231 with like eight homers and 40 RBIs, which was August 8th. <laughs> and you know, that would have been, you know, a month's work for him in Detroit. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it didn't. It didn't work out. And of course, you've talked about the fact that the pressure of being in that position, being the one player, but it really got there. Well, the interesting thing about that is that our team started to make a lot of errors. Lance Parrish was dropping a lot of balls as a catcher. And I hired a psychiatrist. I said, why is our team that never makes errors making errors? And the psychiatrist said, every player's focus is on the catcher. They're always looking at the catcher. And when he makes a mistake, it it makes them nervous and they make errors. And I'd never thought of that before. So when you have a great catcher like the Cardinals do or teams in the past, Yogi Bear, etc., the catcher is always the focus player of the other eight players out there, and I never really understood that until I did the Parrish thing. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually, a, a question for you that, to get back on something you, you gents spoke about earlier about realignment and these Magellan maps with uh, moving teams around. My wife, who is not here this evening, who is not a big baseball fan, I'm trying How's to... Oh, <laughs> Well, somehow we get along. Uh, it's probably better that way. Um, and she would somehow it came up one day. I was trying to teach her a few things, and, and she asked me about the National League and the American League. She goes, I don't get this National League and American League. And what's the National I thought they were all just a baseball. So I'm trying to explain it to her. And as a 54-year-old, it's, it's very meaningful to me. It's how I grew up and uh, as a real National League fan. And... By the way, one of these special things uh, about the clubhouse, and this is really unique, this is definitely the first and maybe the last. Uh, we have Bill Giles here, obviously, tonight, and not to embarrass her, but Katie Feeney is here. And don't ask her for her autograph. Uh, but Katie's father, if I, if I have this correct, uh, took over as National League president, president from Bill's father. Correct. So for those of you who remember that, when baseballs used to have National League and American League on them instead of just Major League Baseball, that's how you would know these names uh, all the time growing up. And uh, to me, it's very meaningful, but it's only, I think it's only a matter of time until it's meaningless, basically. It's not going to matter anymore. And if you could just talk about Well, that, that was a very traumatic uh, thing, and I'm sure my father and Chubb, 
Feeney, Katie's dad, rolled it over in their grout, uh, in their grave, because my father was a staunch, and so was Chubb, National League fan. I mean, when we would fly in the charter flights during the World Series from one to the other, my father wanted to have our charter flight land before the American. <laughs> really. And he wanted to have a martini before the president of the American League did. But anyway, uh, I'm sorry I get a little emotional talking about my dad. But um, it was a big deal. I mean, the, the leagues operated uh, their business-wise. They had their own way of splitting the gate. They had their own umpires. They had their own this and that. And uh, it was a very, very emotional change for a lot of people that were, you know, involved with the National League as the National League and the American League as the American League. Uh, and I would say it's worked out well, but for a lot of people that had their emotions with one league or the other, it wasn't so good. But there still is the All-Star Game, there still is the World Series, and uh, there still is some degree of league separate cheering, etc., but not like it used to be. Well, one of the, it's not often we get a chance to, to pick a brain like yours with your experience, so I'm, I'm going to have to ask this question just to get your opinion. Right. Probably, uh, the, the, well, the one remaining thing that's really uh, magnified is the DH yes. between the two leagues. Nobody cares my, what, I, what I like, but there are some people who love the DH, some people who despise the DH. I would imagine at some point it can't continue like this, especially because of daily interleague play. Am I wrong? Am I, uh, uh, I think you're wrong. I, I think uh, two things about the DH. Uh, you know, those of us who have lived in the National League and grew up through the National League don't like it, of course. Uh, but if my boss at the time, Ruley Carpenter, had not been fishing in the Atlantic Ocean on in 1977 or 8, somewhere along in there, the Phillies were, you know, had won the division in 76, won it in 77. We had two very good offensive players, Keith Moreland and Greg Luzinski, who couldn't field. Neither one of them could field very well. Uh, so my boss at the time, Willie Carpenter, and our general manager, Paul Owens, told me to go to the meetings, and I represented Willie at the league meetings. He told me to vote for the DH. So we get to the league meeting, and I was ready to vote in favor of the designated hitter. But the legal lawyers, uh, the lawyers stood up and said, now, if you vote for the DH... It will not become effective for one more year. It will not be effective next season because the union has to approve it, and the union never approves anything we do for a year. So we had these two hitters that couldn't field, so I didn't know whether to vote yes or no because they told me to vote for it for next year. So I called early Carpenter, and he was out in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean fishing. And I couldn't get him, so I didn't know what to do, so I abstained. So I abstained, and the Pittsburgh Pirates were told by their owner to vote exactly the way the Phillies were because the Phillies, <laughs> <laughs> the Phillies were their, top, you know, their competitor at that time. 
So the pirates voted uh, abstain. We abstained. They didn't have enough votes, and today we don't have the DH <laughs> because Mr. Carpenter was fishing. Let me add something to that story because uh, one of the people I interviewed, compliments of Bill, was uh, Jerry Reinsdorf, and a uh, very interesting character. And uh, so when I walked into his office uh, in the down ground floor of U.S. Cellular Field, uh, I was. Uh, Somewhat taken aback by the fact that almost all the memorabilia he had in his office was Brooklyn Dodger memorabilia, because he's from Brooklyn, he's a lifelong Dodger fan to this day. And we were talking about the American League and the National League and interleague play specifically, and then we got talking to the DH, and I prefaced a question by saying, now you're an American League guy. Now he had owned the White Sox since 1981, right? He goes, no. He says, I'm a National League guy, I'm a Brooklyn Dodger fan. And he said, I don't like the DH. And he actually told me, he said, if you voted on the DH today, it would not be supported by the majority, vast majority of owners. But it'll never be repealed because the Players Association knows that the salary of the DH is a lot higher than the salary of the 25th player on the roster, and that the union will never give up on that. So what you have is the situation you have. So the, the leagues were blown up, essentially, uh, as, as business entities, uh, but... The anomaly is one league has the DH and one doesn't. Reinsdorf also said something. He said, baseball does it backwards. They shouldn't use the DH in the home of the American League. They should use it in the home of the National League during interleague play mm -hmm. and the World Series and the All-Star Game because then the teams in those cities get to see the DH. Mm -hmm. I, ha the I, ha I haven't liked the rule the way it is now. I, I think there's a place for the DH because there are a lot of popular players uh, who are good hitters that can't really play in the National League and can't feel well enough or run or whatever. And I like the controversy. I've always liked controversy, as long as it's not too harming. And so I like it the way it is. Do you think it will continue like this? I do. I do. As, as John said, I don't think the union will ever approve doing away with the DH. So, uh, and I don't think there's enough sentiment in the National League to go that way. In order to come into the National League, it has to get more than half the votes. Is that what it would take? or? I'm not sure of the voting. I'm, I don't know whether it's three-quarters or whatever. It, when I voted back in 1977, it was uh, a majority vote. The, uh, I have plenty more to get to, but I want to turn it over now to... Uh, I'd rather have our clubhouse fans get involved. So does anyone want to lead off with a... Uh, Doug? Yeah, I have a two-part question, and the first part of the question is one that I asked Pete Rose when I met him on Sunday, and the second part of the question is about Pete Rose. <laughs> the first part of my question is I asked him on Sunday, there are a lot of people out there who say that baseball is in decline. And the second part of my question is, does Pete Rose belong in the Hall of Fame? <laughs> Well, number one, I do not believe the baseball is in decline. The attendance is good. TV ratings are good. Revenue is terrific. Uh, I think we do have some challenges. I think we need to speed up the game. <coughs> and uh, I think we try, have to try to find out where, where we can get more hitting. I think people like home runs. And uh, as good as the steroid solutions have been where we don't allow steroids anymore, it's clear that the home runs are going down. And so you have that issue of having more exciting games and a, a few too many longer games than I would like. Pete Rose in the Hall of Fame kind of depends on... 
what time of day you ask me that. <laughs> uh, you know, Pete and I were very close, and uh, I was very close with his wife, Carol, his first wife, and then his second wife. <laughs> But when Pete got in trouble, I called him on the... He actually called me. Uh, <clears throat> what do I do, Bill? I said, Pete, it's very, very easy. You stand up in front of the world, tell the world exactly what you did. Everything. And ask for forgiveness. And people would have forgiven him. But he didn't. He lied. He said he didn't bet on baseball. But he did. And... The thing is, when he bet on baseball, he uses good pitchers. When he didn't bet on his team, the bookies figured out he wasn't going to use his best pitchers, so they boot, they bet against the Reds. That's not very... I mean, betting in baseball is thought of by almost everybody much worse than drugs or alcohol or anything else. The most important thing in baseball is the integrity of the game. Never forget that. One of the comments that Bill made on the way up, we were talking to Manish about uh, Pete Rose, was that uh, uh, it, it was pretty close to getting Bud Seeley to approve that back the year that Molitor and Eckersley were voted into the Hall of Fame. But then Pete brought out a book that was not very apologetic. Right about the time that the announcement was made, it just kind of overshadowed the announcement, and that created a huge barrier uh, to what's going on. And so I guess the question is, after Bud Seeley, what happens? What do you think about that, Bill? That's going to be a tough one. I, I think Rob Manford <coughs> will probably continue doing what Bud did, but I, I don't know. I haven't talked to Rob about it. It's a very, very tough call. Um, you look at him as a player. I mean, my father on his deathbed said the greatest player of all time is Pete Rose. So, but Pete was not born with great skill set. Uh, he did everything with determination, just plain old determination. He was with us back in the 80 and 79 and so forth, and he went 0 for 5 against Montreal. We flew home at 3 in the morning. He went to the batting cage at 3 in the morning. That's, you know, the kind of determination he had. The play that I think I remember most, and many Philadelphians remember who are old enough to remember is when he caught that deflected pop fly from Bob Boone in the 80 World Series. That was classic Pete Rose. Yeah, but Bob Boone said it was Rose's ball in the first round. <laughs> 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 exactly. <laughs> Just relative to that, I don't know how many people realize that today, in 1920, Judge Kenneth on Mountain Landis was elected first pitch. Not right. off the bat. Right, yeah. Nice time. Eight men out. And my cousin was on a roster. Really? Yes. <laughs> That's why I never made any money in baseball. <laughs> yeah, the great question. <laughs> should should, should Sheila Joe Jackson be in the Hall of Fame? Yes. Yes, sir. I don't want to monopolize the discussion here, but I have another. I actually have a lot of questions, but I'll just ask one more. And. That is, you noted uh, earlier in your presentation, and Pete Mills agrees with you on this, by the way, that there's been a decline in uh, batting in years, in recent years, I don't know how far back, but 
one of the things I've noticed is that when you're putting in a new pitcher every two or three or four innings, whereas in the old days, Juan Marichal and Warren Spahn pitched 16 innings one game. Right. So batters have to face a fresh pitcher all the time. And that has to have some impact well, on the batting skills. The big deal now, in my opinion, is all these young pitchers who throw 100 miles an hour. I cannot believe how many pitchers there are that can throw 100 miles an hour. I really, it's unbelievable. I'm not sure why, but it's happening. And they're breaking down. Yeah, yeah right. some of them. Yeah. There's a good piece in the Times today about how baseball is trying to set up a website. They have set up a website where all the information, mm-hmm. and Dr. Andrews saying, Kids who's, it's not 90 at 100, it's 12 year olds throwing 80 at 12. And if somehow you can tell these parents and the kid, and it's going to be hard. Because that, it, maybe it's better to pull back a little bit, play football, basketball, and then not throw curves until you're, you know. Yeah, well, I was taught when I was a little leader, not particularly good, but uh, by the Cincinnati Reds pitcher, you don't throw a curveball till you're 17 years old. <coughs> My 12-year-old grandson is p- playing on a little league team, and these guys are throwing curveballs and knuckleballs and all that stuff. It's crazy. Is the Giles on your <coughs> on the Phillies now any relation to you? We're going to adopt him. If you can. <laughs> 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 can. 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 <laughs> By the way, pitchers, the kids don't do enough long toss. No, they need to do a lot more long toss and a lot less pitching and stretch out the arm muscles. Uh, and that's that's part of the problem. They don't throw every day and, they, and they're throwing off a mound instead of doing a lot more long toss. And that's, but uh, there's, there's, there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a new system. I've got a guy that I'm actually working with in Philadelphia has a system called Kinetrax, which... Uh, takes advantage of uh, very high-speed photography from multiple locations, and they've actually been able to uh, track. It. They don't have to have the markers on. It's a markerless type of uh, motion detection, and they've, they've been able, he's working with 12 major league teams right now in various states of it to, to do all this analysis of the, skele- of the skeleton and all these different angles and release points as they, as they go through the motion, and maybe as a way of trying to find flaws in the motion besides some of the overuse that these kids are having. It's, it's it's a problem. I mean, there's a big article last year in Sports Illustrated about you know, just the proportion of pitchers that are having Tommy John. It's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Is there any part of the country where kids play multiple sports anymore? I taught in a good basketball high school with outstanding players. And yet, if you played them in softball, they were inept. <laughs> Old women on the faculty would be. <laughs> well, it's, you know, I mean, from my point of view, and I've, I've been involved with American Legion baseball for a long time as a coach, I'm the league president. Um, and we're, we're struggling uh, because every sport has become so specialized. And so a lot of baseball players have gone to lacrosse or soccer. And especially lacrosse is very big in the Philadelphia area. And you lose these kids because it's a 12-month-a-year thing. Uh, we love football players. They have summer quarterback camps. They can't play baseball. Uh, and then you're competing with the AAU and the showcases. Uh, so it's, it's difficult. I mean, you don't have a well-rounded sports player, and there's so much specialization. Because every parent thinks their kid can get a college scholarship or a pro offer if they focus on one sport and don't play them all. And then they want to spend thousands of dollars to take their kids from showcase to showcase with almost nothing to show for it at the end. 
They should just play American League baseball. <laughs> <laughs> yes, ma'am. Well, I think one of the bigger problems systemically is up to school level where soccer is so cheap, they have a ball, and that's right. it. And they don't, so the budgets, the school budgets, don't need to pay for equipment that's expensive. So what is, has baseball been able to do anything to work with that problem so that we have more well, they, young they, kids playing? Yeah, they're working on it. They, they have an RBI program, particularly for inner-city kids in yeah. rookie ball, which is helping. Right, but it's still, that's been years, and it's still the same problem. Well, well, the African-Americans are not playing uh, baseball like they used to. And they they're into basketball. Basketball is easier to play. All you need is one ball and two people on a court. Baseball, you got to have more ground to play on and more people to play on, and it's hard. But it's a very big concern. And John mentioned lacrosse. In the area where I live, uh, the good athletes in high school play lacrosse, not baseball. It's more of the in thing to do. It's more fun, and uh, we have some issues. So I have a question about that because baseball, it's an extremely difficult sport to, to play well. Right. But it's it's always been <laughs> it's no different now than it was when you were a child. It's always been very difficult to hit a baseball and, and do everything you need to to play baseball versus soccer or whatever the other sports are, basketball. So it can't just be that the game is difficult. So they want to then play lacrosse or, or soccer or basketball because it's easier. And I understand there could be some expenses involved, but no different than it was in the past when people didn't have money who excelled at baseball. So Well, just, when, when I was growing up, and, and most of you older people, uh, not as old as I am, but, you know, you only had football, basketball, and baseball and track. Those were the four sports. You never knew a whole lot about soccer when I was growing up, and lacrosse was not even on the horizon, but it's changed. So when you all right, so, so now some people will say they need to speed the game up. They lose people. Are there studies done where, I mean, I, I'm probably a dinosaur in this, but where people say, like, we need more runs, we need more offense. I, to me, a one nothing baseball game is the finest sporting event possible. I, I, I love it. Uh, so, now, I may be in the minority, but when you say that you need more runs to get more excitement or shorten the games, is that uh, are these stories that kind of just build on themselves, or are there really studies done? Uh, uh, yeah, they have a committee that's working on that, particularly the time of game is particularly important. Uh, what to do about the hitting, I, I mean, I hope they don't go into where they shorten the mound or do anything like that. But no, our team is just moving the fence. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I had a talk with the St. Joe's baseball coach. Now, St. Joe's is a D1 program. We've gotten a lot better since our new coach came from Army, and uh, we got a new baseball field on campus. And uh, we actually had Jerry Hunsicker back on campus. He's a St. Joe's alum who's right. involved in Major League College with the Dodgers. And... Uh, he came back and we were waiting for him and we were talking and I asked him some of his issues and challenges. He said the biggest issue right now in college baseball is offense. And uh, uh, he said we've got to get back to some offense. He said, you know, five years ago or ten years ago it was way too much the other way. You go to the College World Series, games would be 24 to 16. But they've actually got, they've actually now gone away from the racing ball because they've got to get more offense in the game. Since they changed the bat specifications and pitching has taken over, there's no more offense in college baseball. Mm-hmm. 
And so this is a problem that starts early on. Okay, our bat, our league in the American League was one of the very first leagues to go to wood bats. In the first year, we barely had anything more than two to one games because kids could not hit with wood. And so this this offensive situation since the since the steroids era ended, and it's not just the pro; it's all throughout the system, and it's because of the pitching, and because of the specialists, and uh, and other factors as well, and because of the fact that kids want immediate gratification. So as soon as they realize they can't hit a curveball, they go play another they sport. Go, right. Yeah, right. So, oh, go ahead. Uh, it's actually changing the topic. Good, good. Radically, so. Is it still about baseball? Yes, it is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Personally, I, I hope that there aren't too many new rules that will uh, quicken the game or shorten the game, because there's nothing I'd rather do than watch baseball. So if it's a four-hour game, that's fine with me. Uh, and uh, you know, in terms of runs, and it's it's watching that particular skill, what whatever is happening at the time. If it's the pitcher that's having a no hitter, if it's you know massive home runs in the game, whatever is happening, man, that's all I want to be doing is watching baseball. But that's not what I wanted to ask. <laughs> uh, I wanted to see uh, ask uh, both of you gentlemen if you could comment. It's more of a business um, uh, question about baseball. And if you could comment a bit on the impact of the Players Association, and particularly Marvin Miller, and what happened, you know, when he came on board, uh, you know, I know that's a a very long topic; it could be a seminar in itself. But if you could both comment a little bit on that. Well, the good news is, uh, <laughs> since 2002, things are so so much better. Uh, Donald Fair, who was running it for a while, departed. A guy named Michael Weiner was running the Players Union for a while. He passed away, and they have a new gentleman, Tony Clark, is that right? Uh, running, but the atmosphere and the cooperation is 180 degrees. It really got horrible when Peter Uberoff and Don Fair and others got into it many years ago, and there was a distrust by far by the players. I mean. I tried to have a meeting with the Phillies players one time uh, with uh, investment people, insurance people, to explain to my players uh, all the good things you should invest in, the things you should not invest in. Because I had Steve Carlton; he was his agent convinced him to get into tax shelter. He bought an AMC automobile dealership and lost all his money. Now, I didn't want that happening to my players because I loved the players. So I called this meeting. Not one player signed up. The players are told by their agents, do not trust management. And that was going on for years and years. Now it's different, thank God. And there is a big trust between Rob Manford and Bud Selig and... Tony Clark and their people, and it, it's a good feeling right now. Do, do the agents, are, are they sort of in between the owners and the Players Association, or are the agents aligned with the association? I I'll probably a little bit more with the association, although the association tries to monitor the bad agents. Uh-huh. You have to get approved now to be an agent, oh, uh-huh. which is good. Uh-huh. Full disclosure, as I in- introduced myself to you earlier, I'm involved in the labor movement, not the baseball labor movement, obviously, but um, I'm reading Marvin Miller's book right now, and 
Um, it's a whole new ballgame. Yeah, and he's not very kind about a lot of people. No, no. Even Don Fear, whom I know in an interview for this book, told yeah. me that he thought Marvin went a little bit over the top with that book. It's a little too bitter. Yes. That's what he thought. Yeah. Let me. Let, can I? I'm going to give you a more academic perspective. Uh, I tell the kids in my business of sports class that the most important day in the history of professional sports was December 23, 1975. And that's the day that Peter uh, that uh, Peter Seitz, quote-unquote, freed the slaves on the Messerschmitt-McNally case and redefined the meaning of the reserve clause. What that meant was that baseball's owners, and we actually talked about this at dinner, uh, had to now begin to treat baseball much more as a business where they had to figure out new ways of generating revenues to pay the higher salaries that were inevitable with free agency. And you're really, I mean, Marvin Miller did that. And that is, I think most people would agree that, that that was a crucial step in making baseball a better game. Free agency led to better competitive balance. Free agency led to more money being made. And uh, there's a, a wonderful quote from Bill Lee in Ken Burns' Baseball about the impact of free agency. And I can't remember exactly what it was, but Bill Lee's a spaceman, so you can figure out. <laughs> but he just said, you know, the owners made, the players made more money, the owners made more money, and the only thing that was changed was the planet Earth. Thank you. A question, uh, which is one of the chapters in the book, so I'd like to talk about it. It's, it's one of your crown jewels. Uh, as Daphne mentioned, at City Field, they keep moving the fences in every uh, every year. But you were uh, really the man behind Citizens Bank Park, yeah. and which is really a beautiful park. Lee and I had the good fortune to spend a beautiful afternoon this summer there. And, and one. That's not beat, uh, Seattle. Yeah, Seattle. That was too yeah. frequent. Yeah. <laughs> but it's really beautiful. And uh, if you could just talk a little bit about what that was like. Uh, for those of you who may not remember, it was Veterans Stadium was the prior park, which was kind of that astroturf round thing that a lot of ballparks were at that Good time. description. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and just what that whole experience was like, or what it's, you know, anything we may not know. Well, the economics of our uh, deal with the city of Philadelphia on the Veterans Stadium where we were playing was was not very good compared to other major league teams' deals in their city. And, uh, and in 1991 or two, I said, we, we've got to do something about this or else we won't be competitive. We won't have the revenue to sign play players. So I went down to Camden Yards, 1992, with a couple of my people, and I said, this is what we need. We need a Camden Yards, baseball only, grass, all those good things in Philadelphia. And from 1992 till we got the money in 2001 or two, that's all I worked on because I knew we would not be competitive uh, financially if we didn't have our own ballpark. And then once we felt like we were going to get it, we went to every ballpark uh, built in the United States. And, of course, I grew up going to a lot of games in Wrigley Field with my father. And I loved Wrigley Field. I liked the ivy. I liked all the brick. And so when we built the ballpark, I said, I don't want to see any cement. I don't want to see any aluminum. I want to see brick and grass and plants and good things like that. And then the design and development of it. And I wanted to create something in center field that was like the boardwalk in Atlantic City. People can have fun. Where the kids and family can come and not be particularly a diehard baseball fan and just to enjoy the 
evening or day out, and it worked. I mean, we we built a, a great place. People love it, and uh, it's been a huge success. Chickies and peas. You got it. Long line there. The uh, the story is is really fascinating when you think about it because I interviewed Larry Lucchino, and Larry actually was the ballpark guru for Camden Yards, working at the time for Edward Bennett Williams. And uh, he said that uh, Bill Giles was uh, one of his early students and one of his frequent students in terms of getting lessons on the ballpark and uh, understood pretty pretty clearly, more than many other owners, how important that was uh, in the fortunes, economic fortunes of the team. It just took a little longer to get this deal done in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia because of funding issues. It took a long time to, uh, to be uh, taken care of. He, and there was also location issues. Bill wanted to build a downtown ballpark at 16th and Spring Garden. That never was able to be sold to the uh, politicians who didn't want uh, the ballpark in their neighborhoods. Uh, and he had to overcome that. And, uh, and eventually the design of the ballpark. And in addition to what Bill said about some of the design elements, uh, one of the interesting things about the ballpark is that is the anti-vet. The vet is in the shape of an <laughs> octorod, and there was only arcs. The entire design of the facility was arcs. There are no arcs at all in Citizens Bank Park. It's all angles. Okay, it's all angles. And uh, there's a bunch, besides the the, the, the uh, Ivy in center field, and of course, being a Cub fan, I love Wrigley myself, obviously. Um, there is a section of seats on the top level in the outfield, which are called the rooftop seats, which are not homage to Wrigley Field, they're homage to Shide Park, which used to have rooftop seats on 20th Street. Uh, back in the days of the old Philadelphia A's, before the Shy brothers and Connie Mack decided that they didn't want to give their product away for free, and they built that fence up to 32 feet and called it a spike fence. Um, but uh, all that is part of the design of the ballpark, and uh, it has, in fact, as we saw from the 2008 World Series Championship and the 2009 pennant and five straight years of division titles, did change the economic fortunes of the Phillies. So, Bill, if, if you had your druthers, it would have been in the city. It's in the city itself, in effect. Yeah, at the time uh, of my working on getting a new ballpark, I was chairman uh, of the Philadelphia Convention and Visitors Bureau, and my goal in that role was to, to fill hotel rooms and restaurants. And and I knew the history of the St. Louis Cardinals ballpark being downtown and the success of Baltimore being down by that waterfront thing. And uh, I thought that a downtown ballpark would really help the economic uh, economies of the city of Philadelphia would help happen, help not only us, but, and it was also a justification to get $300 million from the city and state because of the tax revenues. And I felt the tax revenues would be greater if you build a ballpark downtown. But there was one particular politician who lived about uh, 10 blocks from where I wanted to build it. And for fortunately, he's in prison now. But he didn't want all the cars and parking around his house, so he killed the, the location. Chris? I think it's a really interesting point, Mr. Giles, that you bring up about your passion for a ballpark that was more towards center city Philadelphia. And although unrelated, and NLE's rival, and I'm a Mets fan, so we don't like them at all, but the Braves <laughs> moving out into Cobb County, right, um, out of Fulton, 
um, and talking about how that fits in with the parallel of young people that are maybe shying away from baseball. Uh, Atlanta produces great athletes, great young African-American athletes, mostly in basketball and football. And the, the easiest way to push them farther away from the team that now is an all-black outfield is by putting that new ballpark out in the suburbs. And there's, yeah. a, there's a real disconnect there. So you, know, you could build an urban youth academy in Atlanta, but if it doesn't, if it doesn't correlate and the RBI program doesn't relate to where the, uh, the major leaguers are playing, how are any of those young men so that I can grow up to be, you know, uh, yeah, I never, I never thought of that. But I'm sure John Shareholes and his people have studied that and done a lot of research and focus groups, etc. And uh, I'm not privy to it. Uh, but you touch on one subject that has always bothered me, and that is that only about one percent, or one point seven percent, of the uh, attendance is African American sure. in, in throughout Major League Baseball. And I've uh, done a lot of research and focus groups and when we ask why don't you, you come more, why don't you African Americans come more and it's not the price of tickets uh, they say we don't feel welcome and they say do you ever Mr. Giles, do you ever go into an all black church no I don't well, when a black person walks into particularly the better seats at Citizens Bank Park, unless they have a friend that has the season ticket, they don't feel really welcome. Now, at the vet, when African Americans would go up to the upper deck, it was really bad. I mean, a lot of those not African Americans would say bad things to them. And so there's that feeling that African Americans are not really welcome at a ballpark, and I don't know that you can do anything about it. We we tried eight million different ways to uh, appeal to them, and it just never worked. Well, I think interestingly, from my perspective, you've done well. Uh, Jimmy Rollins and Brian Howard. Uh, there are there are young people that I've talked right. to in Philadelphia. That's and because of Steve Bandura and RBIs, that I I've stuck with baseball because. I've seen those gentlemen do it on the highest level. And um, uh, so it's one at a time. So I would compliment the Phillies more for that and the facility of Philadelphia and individuals like Steve Mandura. And I think the, the best story in sports this year on a youth baseball level emanates from Monday Davis right. in Philly. So um, it's one at a time. So I think you should, That's a good point. Thank you should you. take a, a, a compliment. Come to St. Joe's next Thursday. Steve Bendor is speaking to our sports marketing students. Yeah, I met him before. Good man. He's a real good man. Yeah, um, I think the success of the inner city baseball stadiums is most typified by, by Pac Bell, AT&T Park in San Francisco. Everybody there is 25, 30, 35 years of age. Yeah. Um, everybody walks to the stadium. It's just a totally different experience in ways that counts. I tip my hat to the San Francisco Giants for a lot of things. They didn't have much public money, and maybe none, to build that ballpark. And they were not only successful in building the park, but they keep winning. <laughs> I mean, really, it's a... I tip my hat to those people. Larry Bear and whoever else is calling the shots. It's, I mean, the best job ever done in baseball, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, just following up on that, I used to run sales and marketing for the Mets for many years, and uh, with the group sales... The largest uh, percentage, other than companies, for group sales was from churches and temples. And African American, in particular, 
typically did come as part of the church groups, and it was large numbers. So I'm not sure that the idea about the economics not being the major factor is, in fact, true. It might be in some areas and not others, but that's never been my experience that it was just not interest because the church groups were huge numbers that we did. Yeah, they probably enjoy coming as a group. That's more so as an that's individual. The, but yeah. that's what I'm talking about. We got yeah. because they had the bus, they traveled in, it was a regular thing, they were very organized, and we did huge numbers with that. Yes, sir. Um, um, I forgot my question because I was listening to the lady over here. Uh, two, a couple days ago, it was reported in the media about human trafficking. Uh, someone who pled guilty to human trafficking of over a thousand people, including a lot of sports uh, figures, including baseball players. And to me, I thought, is this the next steroid issue? And what is Major League Baseball doing about human trafficking of baseball players into America? Well, that was from Cuba specifically. Uh, I really don't know a thing about it. Lee? What was, when the so-called steroid era was beginning, did you have early suspicions? Who knows when it began? Well, in, the night, well, in 1988, Canseco was playing in, against the Red Sox and Fenway in the playoffs. And the, the whole bleachers are going, steroid, steroid. And he's going like this to the crowd. So... It, it clearly, it clearly started in uh, sometime in the eighties, and uh, but you know, well, you, I, you, I, I, you might be right, but I, I was like a lot of baseball executives. I didn't know anything about steroids. I didn't even know what it did for you or whatever. I mean, I had a bad back one time when I got a steroid shot in my back. I mean, so what's the big deal? So what's the big deal about steroids? But I'll, t I'll, t I'll t tell you kind of a sad story about me. In 1993 spring training, I'm playing golf with Lenny Dykstra, and he looks like a muscle man. I said, Lenny, you really been working out? And he smiles at me and he said, Nope, special vitamins. <laughs> and it didn't dawn on me what the hell he was talking about. It really didn't and, until the end of the season. Because I didn't understand it. I mean, I was ignorant, stupid. Well, but on the other hand, if it hadn't been for steroids, when you think of the 1994 season, and the no World Series business, and then Sosa and McGuire came back a year or two later, start hitting all those home runs. It brought brought the fans back that had left because of the no postseason. So there's there was some good to it, but in the long run, it's not good to have steroids. Just from a uh, a time factor, we're at the end of the uh, we're at the bottom of the ninth with our podcast timing. So we're going to have to say farewell to the podcast audience. The book, Bill Giles and Baseball, written by John B. Lord, Temple University Press. Uh, if everyone would please thank John Lord and Bill Giles for an amazing music. Okay.